Good morning. I'm glad that you are here. Uh, good to see some visitors. Uh, I know in the, in the summertime, uh, we usually trade some of our faces for some of the ones down south and from other other places. And nowadays, it is just good to see faces, you know. I work in a place where everybody has to wear a mask the whole time they're there. Uh, and uh, so I wear that thing about nine hours a day. That's been going on for a year and a half now. And so, uh, you know, after about 50-plus hours of work every week in that environment, you just feel like people don't have faces, you know. Uh, and, and then after, after you're there for 50 something hours a week and then you, you go out and maybe you go to the store, it's just kind of, it's a little strange to see faces. And it's like, wow, a face, you know. Uh, but, uh, we were wonderfully made, including all the faces, including mine, if you can believe that. Uh, so, uh, first of all, uh, much thanks uh, and very sincere, heartfelt appreciation. There's close verse coming in back there in case y'all didn't know that. Uh, appreciation for uh, uh, Jay uh, stepping in to, to take the class for me last week. Uh, very much appreciated uh, and, and an excellent lesson. So uh, in the event that anyone here this morning or anyone... Uh, watching on the uh, on the camera thing, the uh, guys. What do we call that? The live stream. Yep. Uh, if if you missed uh, that lesson or any of the lessons uh, that are in that archive, uh, go look at them. Uh, and uh, that way, uh, remember in the beginning uh, how how in our introduction we talked about how <clears throat> uh, in order for us to pursue the spirit and intent of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, uh, they're addressing uh, our unity and that we be in agreement on all things. It makes sense that that we need to be learning the same things all at the same time together so that we all know what one another are talking about, you know. Um, and so the week before that, Jay... Uh, uh, and, and thanks to Jay also for, for teaching the book of Zephaniah uh, in, uh, in one class and uh, wrapping that up <clears throat> uh, to get us back on track with our time. So I'll do my best to keep us on track with the time. But, you know, in, in uh, uh, the, the, you, you could take these minor prophets, and uh, we're, I know that we're teaching the minor prophets in a quarter, uh, but if, if you, if you assigned one of our men to teach the minor prophets and gave them a year to do it, there's plenty of material, you know, uh, that could very easily be done. And I think that if you, uh, said, okay, uh, we'll give you two years, uh, teach the minor prophets in two years, that could also be done. Uh, that's how rich and bountiful the word of God is and full of lessons for us. So you, you just ca- have to kind of pick and choose. Uh, uh, a great orator once said, maybe it was someone like Ben Franklin or one of the presidents or, or uh, I mean, uh, Abraham Lincoln or somebody said, you know, if, if you want me to speak for an hour, 
give me five minutes to prepare, but if you want, to, want me to speak for five minutes, you need to give me three hours to prepare. Uh, so, you know, something to think about there. But uh, uh, So I'm going to go back and just talk about some of the lessons from Habakkuk, uh, since that was the book that we were wrapping up but didn't complete the week before last. Uh, and this won't take very long because I'm trying to manage my time. But uh, uh, I want us to remember from that the things that we discussed about prayer. Habakkuk was made to wait. We weren't told how long, but in chapter 2, in the first verse there, he said, now I'm going to wait until I've been corrected. Um, and so we need to be praying, first of all. Uh, we need to be a prayerful people. Uh, there are a lot of good lessons about prayer so that we can understand how and for what and uh, and about praying often and fervently lessons about a father and their children and and how you know in in uh, uh, from our perspective as a father if if my children didn't talk to me how that would make me feel god you know we're his children he wants to to know us and to uh, have that direct avenue of discussion with us obviously uh praying for him with our intercessions and our requests making those known to him and the spirit assisting us with that making utterances that we can't come up with on our own you know uh spirit's there to help us with that and uh so the importance of prayer uh understanding that uh, patience is necessary there uh habakkuk said he was going to wait and he said he was going to wait until he was corrected so uh he had his position that uh, he appears in chapter one to have taken firmly uh seemed like he had great confidence in his position and then he reveals there in the first verse of chapter two that uh, uh you know i'm dealing with god and he's in charge so now i'm going to wait until i am corrected understanding that uh that uh, in in his thinking and in my thinking and in our thinking, uh, there, we need to have that attitude that, uh, uh, no, no matter how right I believe that I am, no matter how correct that I think that I am, there's probably still some listening to be done on my part, uh, to fine tune, uh, and then, and then there are also times when you find out you're just completely wrong, you know. Uh, when you were very confident in your position in the first place. Waiting should be done faithfully, like Habakkuk did. Give yourself to prayer, reading the Word of God. While you are waiting, serve others. And give yourself to prayer and reading the Word of God and offering our bodies as living sacrifices. Romans 12, 1 and 2 there. These prophets were sure of God. The prophets were sure of God, and Habakkuk demonstrates that. He was more sure of God than he was of himself. Uh, and remember uh, the passage that uh, we, we talked about in our introduction and we're going to talk about again. We talk about several times throughout these in Ephesians 4. Uh, and there around verse 12, where it talks about how Jesus himself gave these prophets, among others, for um, equipping us 
for the work of ministry and for the edifying of the body and for our unity that we read about there. And we'll look at that again. And then also in Acts chapter 17, and I'm just going to look at that again real quick here and then we'll move on. In Acts chapter 17... A reminder that God is in charge. When Paul was speaking at that Areopagus, and he explains to them, The God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. He gives to all life, breath and all things and he has given us everything that we need for godliness and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so god's in charge and uh like tony keeps telling us from those uh, lessons from the beatitudes we ought not to worry so much about things that we can't control. All right. So the book of Haggai, uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. I've heard it pronounced different ways. I've heard some preachers pronounce it Haggai, and I've heard some preachers pronounce it Haggai. But you guys know I'm a little lazy, so Haggai is only two syllables. So I'm going to go with Haggai. All right. Hope that doesn't bother anyone. Um, and I, I wanted to just read a couple of things to give us context before we uh, dive in here. Brief, briefly. Background and, and understand that uh, Haggai is the uh, uh, the first post-exilic prophet. So you have the prophets that were pre-exile pro- uh, prophets that prophesied uh, during the exile. Uh, and then Haggai was the first of the post-exilic prophecies. And uh, in 538 B.C., the conqueror of Babylon, Cyrus, king of Persia, issued a decree allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Led by Zerubbabel, about 50,000 Jews journeyed home and began work on the temple. About two years later, they completed the foundation amid great rejoicing. We see that in Ezra chapter 3. Uh, and, and you want to read, uh, uh, if you haven't uh, reviewed them lately, I know we've already studied them together here, uh, that, uh, but uh, you need to, to review Ezra and Nehemiah, right? Their success aroused the Samaritans and other neighbors who feared the political and religious impl- implications of a rebuilt temple in a thriving Jewish state. They therefore opposed the project vigorously and managed to halt work until Darius the Great became king of Persia in 522 B.C. Um, Darius was interested in the the religions of his empire, and Haggai and Zechariah began to preach in his second year in 520 B.C. The Jews were more to blame for their inactivity than their opponents, and Haggai tried to arouse them from their lethargy. And then uh, that's one of those study Bibles. I'm reading the, the little thing at the beginning of the chapter there. And then this, uh, like I had shown you when I cited and integrated uh, my references uh, at the beginning of this quarter, is uh, one of these Truth for Today commentaries that I recommend uh, that you can 
talk to Judy about or just go straight to the, uh, uh, wherever these came from, resource publications. So, uh, uh, and this one is a book, the second book on the minor prophets that includes Haggai. And uh, this one apparently was uh, written and edited by Coy D. Roper, uh, a brother in Christ. One should not underestimate the importance of Haggai's work. The temple was the visual symbol of God's presence. God was with his people, but he was in a special sense present in his temple. In fact, the temple was the symbol of the covenant between God and his people Israel. Therefore, when Nebuchadnezzar's troops destroyed Jerusalem and the temples in 586 B.C., and when the Ark of the Covenant disappeared, uh, look at Jeremiah chapter 3 about that, it was a sure sign that God had abandoned his people because of their covenant faithful faithlessness. The rebuilding of the temple represented the reestablishment or continuation of the covenant and assurance that God was still with his people. In addition, the temple represented God, both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. As long as the temple lay in ruins, God's name was dishonored. Consequently, it was essential for the temple to be rebuilt. Haggai's message was, therefore, neither unspiritual nor insignificant. God himself was behind Haggai's mission. He required the temple to be rebuilt that he might, uh, like it says in chapter 1 and verse 8, be pleased with it and be glorified uh, by his temple. So, uh, you know, uh, throughout throughout the the time before these classes that I read and prepare uh, and uh, uh, and look at different things, uh, and and you know if I uh, if I, if I happen upon anything from two sources that seems contradictory, I'll I'll just either maybe not mention that or go with the most reliable source in my judgment, which would be uh, a source uh, that uh, you know like this. Pretty reliable, uh, in, in my opinion. Uh, but understand, though, that uh, when you find things like that, there is no contradiction in Scripture. If, if you think that you found a contradiction in the Word of God, I assure you, you have not. Uh, and you need to keep studying until you work that out. Uh, so that's important to understand, too. Men will contradict one another, and you'll find contradiction in sources if you're if you're looking outside of the Word of God for commentary and historical context and things of this nature. Uh, but you will not find any conflicting points in the Word of God. That's very important. And so um, some of the, the teaching and preaching that I've heard on Haggai before, uh, and we like to start off with an attention step sometimes to gain the attention of our audience and maybe hold it throughout that uh, as motivation and some of the attention steps that I've that I've read and listened to uh, I think that Haggai's message was just taken too mildly because uh, so you have an unfinished temple the temple of God um, and a people who had perhaps grown a little lazy and lethargic and were fearful of of the people around them because they were back and uh, perceived as a as a threat uh, and Unwanted and unliked. Remember, go back throughout the Old Testament, read about all the conflicts that they had had and the enemies that they had in that region that now they were back in the midst of, uh, who surrounded them on all sides. 
Uh, so you can understand the fear. You can understand their reluctance to begin uh, or to continue. Actually, they had already begun it uh, 16 years prior, but uh, to continue the construction, uh, the rebuilding of that temple. Um, uh, but but we're going to find out that uh, reading this, that they were wrong to have waited. So, um, but but in some of those attention steps and some of the teaching and uh, and uh, the messages about this, it was taken too lightly. It was compared uh, when they when they bring it forward and say, "How is this a lesson for us today?" They look at you know unfinished uh, projects around the home, uh, unfinished projects at work, un- un- uh, things in our lives that uh, that are unfinished that you can kind of take lighthearted and joke around about and say it's a on the honey do list and and uh, you know. Uh, the wife keeps asking the husband to do something, and he says, you know, I, I'll eventually get around to it in two years or something like that. And I don't think that uh, that God's message to us from Haggai is intended to be taken with that tone uh, as, as a lighthearted thing. So let's get into it and judge for ourselves, uh, and I think that you'll agree with me. All right, so we've already mentioned that, you, uh, that we need to read... Uh, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. So at least go back and review those things, especially Ezra, uh, in my opinion. But um, uh, so uh, Haggai starts off with some specific details that you don't find in the other prophets. So one of the things that makes Haggai unique is the establishment of the dates to the day, to the very day, uh, that you can pinpoint uh, the writing of of Haggai and these events of the revelation of his prophecy uh, in the reign of Darius, uh, as established there in the first verse. And uh, Haggai gives us specific dates in uh, uh, chapter 1 and verse 1. And I'm going to try to find them all here. And in chapter 2 and verse 1, in chapter 2 and verse 10, the fourth, the 24th day of the ninth month, second year of Darius, and then uh, in uh, chapter 2 in verse 20. So gives us uh, specific dates, beginning, middle, and end, uh, that reveal to us that these events occurred uh, over the course of about four months, which is pretty brief and short period of time on 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 the... Uh, the graph of time when you look at if there's a timeline from, you know, from Adam and Eve all the way to us, and then you, you look at, uh, the, the course of events that, that occurred. So it's, it's amazing to me how God can take something that occurred over a four month period and make it so important that you're reading about it so much later and, and will be continued, uh, to, to studied and, and have read about for, uh, we can't predict how long. Uh, we we can't we're warned not to try to predict when the Lord's coming and the, the end of time uh, could be here in a minute could be a thousand years few thousand hundreds of thousands we don't know uh, it's uh, God's in charge we're on his timeline and uh, so uh, it's important to note that Haggai occurred over a four-month period uh, so chapter 1 occurred over a period of roughly 23 days, and then chapter 2, a period of approximately uh, uh, a couple of months or whatever is left there with the math. So uh, consider the burden of the prophets, first of all, in thinking about Haggai. 
and try to put ourselves in his shoes. They were hyper-focused on some rather evil things on some at some really dark times, and they delivered messages from God to the people. And that's established in verse 1 of chapter 1, the second year of King Darius. When the battery dies, it starts ringing like a doorbell. It's aggravating. Um, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, uh, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And so the message was from God to the people. Uh, and these messages were uh, heartbreaking and gut-wrenching. Think about Habakkuk, you know, and, uh, and, and the books before that where they were warned of forces that were coming in uh, and the threat that they represented. Imagine carrying that knowledge and being tasked with delivering that message to the people. We've talked about that before, too. Um, kind of reminds me of a brother uh, down south. Where shortly after Melissa and I had become Christians down in Abilene, we were attending a congregation, and there was a brother named Edwin Wilcoxon. Uh, he was an older gentleman. Maybe maybe some of you have heard of Edwin. Uh, and I remember I was a brand new Christian. I was uh, still still trying to, I was one of them neophytes, still trying to figure things out. I'm still trying to figure things out now, but even more so then. And so uh, uh, our preacher at the time, Jimmy Jividem, would, would be out of town uh, or to go somewhere. And so uh, he would ask, sometimes he would have Edwin uh, preach for him. Edwin was an older gentleman, I think probably in his mid to late 70s at the time, and uh, before uh, health had forced his retirement, he had been a preacher uh, for many years. So, okay, got a qualified guy here, uh, educated preacher with a lot of experience, and and I trusted Jimmy's judgment. He's going to, the elders trusted Jimmy's judgment, I should say, and so this guy's going to preach, stand and preach. And, like, his lessons were just, to me, uh, just really dark and ominous and and... And to me at the time, because I didn't understand how to put things in context yet, they were discouraging. Uh, and, uh, and I thought, this dude is a bummer, you know? Uh, and, uh, and in fact, back, back that far, that's probably exactly what I thought. Uh, and it's amazing how we make judgments that in later years we understand more clearly and better. And the things that Brother Wilcoxon was preaching on were absolutely necessary. And they were scriptural. There's a word for you. They were, they were biblically solid. The doctrine was sound, but they were about dark things, uh, to my young Christian mind. They were about things like hell and the possibility of spending eternity away from the presence of God. And they were about things like weeping and gnashing of teeth and where the, the, the fire is not quenched. And then other things that were dark and he delivered them <laughs> with, in, in such a grim way. But man, it got my attention and it introduced me to those very important concepts that we cannot shelter ourselves from, nor our children, right? Um, but these men, uh, and I'm not saying that he was a prophet, 
want to make sure you understand that. I don't want anyone saying later, he said this guy in Abilene was a prophet. No, he's a preacher, right? Uh, talks about him in Ephesians 4.12 too, along with the prophets, but not as a prophet. These men carried the burden of a particular issue on their heart, so they often seem grim, and it's necessary. They focal, They focus on the evil of their times. Sometimes it's necessary for your preacher and your teacher and your elders to focus on evil and dark things of our times, right? And and you, you know that as a Christian, you still have the joy of being a Christian in your heart and all that goes along with it. Um, but you've got to make room in your heart to understand these things as well. So don't let yourself get discouraged and walk away from a lesson or a preacher and say, man, that dude is a bummer, as long as he's teaching things that are biblically sound, sound doctrine and scriptural. The prophets focused on the evil of their times and with a tone of both encouragement and rebuke, and we're going to see that here in Haggai. They warned that we must deal with this. We can't ignore this. We can't act like it's not happening. We have to address it. Haggai carries a burden, and his burden is God's burden. The burden that he reveals is God's burden. Look at verse 8, where it says, uh, I'll start with verse 7 in chapter 1, where thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. We're going to talk about that again in a few minutes, too. Go up to the mountains and bring wood. And most of the time where you see somebody going up in the mountain to bring wood, it's about uh, making an offering. But not this time. He says, bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. So there is the the focal point of Haggai. There is the the main purpose. uh, You call it the the thesis or the objective statement of Haggai's message was they needed to get to work and build the temple. And so God sent his message through Haggai to relate to them, build the temple that I may be pleased and glorified. They had started building it 16 years before this, like we had talked about, and for those reasons that we discussed before and for other reasons, they stopped. Construction stopped. Now imagine that. Uh, and... and uh, you know, we can we can imagine that uh, uh, that the congregation here began to like uh, fall apart after some natural disaster, and that uh, that we collectively decided, man, we got to pull our resources and we need a place to meet, right? And uh, it's understood that uh, in the interim, if anything ever happens to this place, no problem, we'll meet together uh, somehow, but we'll do it. You know, uh, remember the Christians during, uh, people like emperors like, like Nero, uh, had to meet down in them catacombs among the dead. That kind of makes you think of 1 Corinthians 10 13, where it says, uh, God will not tempt you above, there we go again. I did it again, James. God will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you might bear up under it, it says in the King James. So the way to escape for them, you know, they could say, oh, we better not worship anymore. We better stop worshiping God because there's, you know, uh, is they went and uh, did that in a place you don't want to go, right? But we would figure out a way. 
In those days, unless there was a temple, the presence of God did not reside among his people uh, in that special way. Now, understand, first of all, I don't know if you ever read Jim McGuigan's book about uh, about the kingdom. Uh, Jim McGuigan was, uh, uh, I think he's an Irish fellow, maybe Scottish, I'm not sure. But he's a preacher in, in the Lord's Church. Uh, and I think he spoke at one of our lectureships. Maybe, yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, he's got a book that he wrote uh uh, about uh, the kingdom and understanding the different the, the various facets of the kingdom and its application in scripture of course understanding that everything and all of existence is under the rule and authority of God everything and everywhere and everyone everything in all of, of existence um, understanding for us though that in the context that the king kingdom is spoken of throughout the New Testament uh, it's talking about the church. The church is the kingdom. And we can look at that later too. You can study that. We know that. It was the, their heart of worship. That temple. It's pretty important. So for 16 years, they didn't have this. Uh, no central place there. Um, Let's look at John chapter 4, verse 20 and 24. I understand one difference today. John chapter 4, beginning of verse 20, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman there. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. So they're talking about where, where worship needs to occur there. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. And I did some reading on this spirit and truth because, of course, we, we want to understand worship very thoroughly uh, as Christians, as we worship our God every first day of the week. Um, we worship the Father in spiritual, talking about the spiritual aspects of worship, and in truth, uh, having uh, at least a twofold meaning there, meaning that, uh, that there is integrity in our worship, both in our hearts, in that... Uh, uh, that, that our worship is true and that, that when we come together here and we commune, uh, for our purpose of worship, uh, on the first day of the week, that it, we, that each of us together, that that is actually what's going on in our heart and in our mind and that we're not somewhere else, right? Uh, <clears throat> or something else is going on. Um, and truth also meaning with the integrity that we're worshiping God's way. We're doing it his way that's revealed to us in, in his word, in accordance with the truth of his word, in accordance with his will. Um, and so Haggai's message is to them, let's get to work. It's time to roll up our sleeves and get this done. It's sat idle. We, we built the foundation uh, of the temple, and then it's sat idle for some 16 years. Uh, and so we can conclude that it... Uh, took Haggai a little while to motivate them. 
uh, in, in uh, the book here where we see from when he began to motivate them until they actually started to move forward and get, get things working. It looks like about 24, 25 days from Haggai chapter 1 and verse 1 to chapter 1 and verse 14 where we see, So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, uh, a little note on that that remnant there. There, there are uh, very seems like strategic points throughout Scripture where we see that God has preserved a remnant of His people, uh, like uh, like the remnant of Israel that uh, that uh, that survived being lost in the wilderness uh, to enter into uh, the land of milk and honey, right? The remnant, uh, a remnant is spoken of, I'm trying to think if it's Esther or Ruth or both. Which one was a queen? Esther. Esther, thank you. I get things mixed up in my head. You'll understand when you're 29. Um, And the remnant is spoken about when we read the account of Joseph and his brothers, where a remnant was preserved there. And then here we see it again. All the remnant of the people who had been preserved following the exile, had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius, or Darius, if you prefer. And uh, this was after he had prophesied in verses 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. So a question that I had to stop and ask myself when I was reading this was, first of all, 2 Corinthians 13.5 that I had trouble finding a couple weeks ago uh, says, examine yourselves, examine yourselves, test yourselves, see if you're in the faith. How long does it take for Tony's preaching to manifest fruit in my life? Because it's the preacher's job, just like it was Haggai, to move the people. Remember, motivation comes from the Latin word movir or movire, which means to move. So to motivate people, which in my opinion, Tony does very effectively, very with very sound doctrine in a scriptural and biblical way, his message from God to us, uh, how long does it take for Tony's preaching to manifest fruit? in my life and uh notice how i'm putting that focus on me not you 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 do what you want with it that's what i'm doing with it right to move us to act to action right uh do his lessons do the lessons of our teachers uh and the messages from our elders that we're admonished to obey do uh, do they drive appropriate action? And that part is up to us, right? Um, where is the evidence or the product? Because remember, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12, we're going to look at that real quick here. I know, I know. I always say real quick, and then it ends up taking a long time. So yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it quick this time. In Ephesians 
chapter 4 and verse 12, and I keep going back to this because I really want it to be applying the message of the prophets to us today. Because here in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12, it tells us that, that the, these prophets serve a purpose for us even now. So we have to find the treasure in their messages. Start with verse 11. It says, He himself, Jesus, that you see from above that, Jesus gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So all these in this, this grouping here were given for, verse 12, the equipping of us for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So you can either say they were given for those two purposes, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Uh, but I think that, that here the meaning is that the work of ministry, the work, the action, our reaction, our response to God's word is the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting and so forth and so on. Um, so it kind of throws in children there saying that if I am not responding appropriately, if I am not reacting appropriately, if I am not driven to appropriate, appropriate action by how the word of God is being taught to me, then I'm like a child. And we see that in other places too, like in Hebrews chapter 5 and 12, I think it was there. Uh, but anyway, something to think about. The same was, was true with these, uh, these Jews that the Haggai was talking about, that they was talking to. His message was delivered to these people who had stopped building the temple of God. And, uh, uh, you know, if, if you're a historian, you like to think about the historical context and take your mind back to that time and that place and try to think of anything that was more important at the time than uh, completing the construction of the temple of God. Let's look at uh, Philippians 3.17. In Philippians 3.17 it says, Brethren, join in following my example... And note those who walk as you have us for a pattern. So Haggai sets the example for us in several very important ways. Uh, he has contagious enthusiasm. And when you read the book of Haggai before we met here this morning, you saw that. He strongly rebukes indifference. Look at chapter 1 and verses 2 through 5 where he says... Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, So God says that those people who are not building the temple say, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. It's not time. It's not a good time for that, right? Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Do you think they had built houses for themselves during that period of time, that 16 years? Consider your ways. We see it again. 
You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. All of these provisions, no satisfaction. Uh, Haggai sets an example with attention to detail. And he has an extreme sensitivity toward God in delivering four messages in two chapters here. And he begins each of them with, Thus says the Lord of hosts. So there are five times that Haggai says, tells them to consider. Chapter 1 and verse 5, where he says, Consider your ways. Therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And again in verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And there are exclamation marks after this. I'm just not going to like yell through this microphone or I think it does this loud ringing thing. So imagine that. Chapter 2 and verse 15. And now carefully consider from this day forward. And chapter 2 and 18 Consider now from this day forward. From this day forward. And look at that. We are still considering these things today. This this emphasis on consider your ways. Consider this and consider your ways. God uh, commanding here with exclamation marks that these things be considered can be applied to all of God's word. But we're focused on Haggai right now. It kind of reminds me of when you read about uh, Jesus' mother, Mary, uh, in the Gospels, where I think, uh, in particular in Luke, maybe, where, uh, it repeats several times where it says, Mary pondered these things in her heart. Right? And so when you see something like that, it's like, oh, hold on. Let me back up and read what I, I kind of just went through a little too quickly and see what are these things that Mary pondered in her heart. Might be something important there. And there certainly was. So by consider, uh, the, uh, the Hebrew, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, when you look at the word, uh, it means to set your heart onto something, set your heart on it, to examine yourself. That's why you're being told to consider your ways. And oftentimes we're too busy considering someone else's ways to consider our own, are we not? But we're told here, the admonishment is for these people to consider, to closely examine their own lives. And we see our own admonishments throughout the New Testament to examine ourselves. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where uh, uh, we, we often uh, recite that uh, when, when we're focusing on our Lord's Supper, uh, so ought a man to examine himself. And then, as we mentioned before, in uh, Hebrews uh, chapter, uh, I'm sorry, in Second uh, Corinthians uh, 13 and 5, where it says, examine yourself as to whether you're in the faith. That's, that's kind of a scary approach to examining yourself, right? Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. I remember the first time I read there, the first time I heard it, I was like, whoa, what are you talking about? Examine myself to see if I'm in the faith. Of course I'm in the faith, right? Uh, but <laughs> still a very necessary thing uh, and uh, something we need to give careful attention to. Closely examine your own life. 
Remember that these prophets of old were given to us by Jesus in uh, Ephesians 4.12 there, to equip us for the work of ministry and for the edification of the body, which is his church. And so we've established that chapter 1 is a reproof and admonishment, and chapter 2 we we find uh, some encouragement. So um, in verse 8, Haggai tells them it's time to get your priorities straight. It's time to get your priorities straight. And for us, I don't want us to focus on household projects. I don't think that God intended for this to cause me to go home. And uh, now, don't get me wrong. Uh, yeah, you still need to, guys, you need to pay attention to, to what your wife wants you to do around the house and vice versa, you know. Uh, so, you know, I'm not dismissing that. I'm just saying that uh, an unfinished project of God is a whole different category. It's more important than that, right? And so that temple was unfinished. Know you not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? So if we think about perhaps ourselves being a temple under construction and an unfinished temple, then what spiritual applications can we make there? And we'll continue to talk about that next week. Will you pray with me as we close? Most gracious and loving Father in heaven, we're thankful for this time that we've had together to study a portion of your word this morning. I'm prayerful, uh, as we all are, Father, that uh, we'll commit these things to our heart and apply them and to seek uh, the, the treasure in these messages that apply to us today. And, and Father, that uh, as with all things, that we might seek to please you and to fulfill your will as we learn more about it in our lives in every way. And thank you most of all for your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Was that the second bell? Yes. Okay.